0: Micah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. My people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness? and to walk humbly with your God. Now, Lord, we thank you for your presence. I ask now that you'll open our hearts, that we may hear and receive your word, that we may hear what the Spirit will say in the midst of the preaching today. I lift up to you other life-giving churches, and I pray blessing upon them. And I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. That you draw them to a place of repentance. So that not one of them will be lost. I thank you for that. I pray this in the only name that matters. The marvelous name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Not a lot is known about the Old Testament prophet Micah. We do know he ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah over a period of about 60 years during a very schizophrenic time in Israel's history. He was active about the same time as the prophet Isaiah and about 20 years before Israel was invaded by Babylon and the nation was sent into exile. Micah was active during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and the early part of Manasseh. I call this a schizophrenic time because this was a time in Israel's history when it was struggling with its identity. Jotham, the, the first king Micah served under, was a good king who walked with God. However, the historian tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 27 that while Jotham walked with God, The people did not. The next king, Ahaz, was the exact opposite. He was a wicked king. He worshiped false gods, even sacrificed his own sons by burning them alive. Ahaz was then followed by Hezekiah, who was the exact opposite of Ahaz. By this time, the people are experiencing whiplash. Good, bad, good. Hezekiah repaired the temple, you remember. He reinstituted temple worship and sacrifices and demanded that the people worship God. However, during his reign, Israel was consistently under siege from the Assyrians. Even though God brought some miraculous victories and deliverances from these pagan people, even having an angel of the Lord kill 185,000 of them in one night. The devastation to the land and the stress load on the people was almost unbearable. In spite of Israel having a good king in Hezekiah, they had a huge problem. And God sent Micah to call them on it. Hezekiah may have convinced them to repair the temple and begin sacrifices again, but there was a problem. The people only did what they were compelled to do. They were acting right. But their hearts weren't in it. They had fallen into an empty kind of religion. The people were practicing the rituals and they were performing the requirements of the religion. But they had no relationship. And this is the place where so many in the church find themselves today. Empty religion. Religion that gathers people in a building but makes no demands of the believer. Religion that goes through the motions but doesn't truly desire a mighty move of God. Religion that wants the benefits and blessings of God with none of the requirements that goes with the relationship. Now, if you're part of this service today and you're just inquisitive, you're just checking us out, or if you're a seeker and you're not really sure about this whole Jesus thing, that then you get a pass on this part of the message right now, okay? But if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then I want to ask you, why are you here? Are you in the building or are you participating in our online congregation because that's what you're supposed to do or because you want God to do something in your life? Are you here to fulfill an obligation Or to meet with the Most High God? Are you here to observe a religious ritual or to offer yourself as a living sacrifice? This is what Micah addresses with the nation of Israel. By the time we get to chapter six, you find that there is a massive class action lawsuit that has been filed against God's people. A subpoena has been served to require their presence in the court. And the plaintiff is none other than the Lord God Almighty himself. Creation itself has been called to witness the proceedings and to serve as the jury. The Lord has a contention against his people and he demands an answer. As he presents his opening arguments... It comes in an unexpected form. Instead of a searing accusation, he begins by asking a series of questions. It's almost as if God is putting the blame for the people's transgressions and they're turning away upon himself. He's he's suggesting maybe, maybe he hasn't been an adequate God. He asks here in verse 3, my people, notice by the way, notice the compassion right here, almost pleading as he calls them, my people, my people, what have I done to you and how have I wearied you? Answer me. In verses 3 and 4, the Lord calls upon his people to remember. He reaches back into the historical records and reminds them of four different times when he came through for them. First, he delivered them from Egyptian bondage. Second, he gave them leaders to show the way. Third, he protected them from the evil devices of Balak and Balaam. Fourth, he guided them through the wilderness and brought them to the land of promise. At every step along the journey, the Lord was with them. Not one promise he made has failed. Not one enemy has prevailed. I I, I want to ask you today, when has the Lord ever failed you? When has the Lord ever abandoned you? When has the Lord ever turned his back on you? Oh, I was thinking about this, and I thought, how I wish we could have the choir singing these days, Pastor Larry. Because if the choir were singing, I'd have them up here singing a song they've sung over the years that says, how many times must I prove how much I love you? How many ways must my love for you I show? How many times must I rescue you from trouble for you to know just how much I love you? Didn't I wake you up this morning? You were clothed in your right mind. When you walked up on a problem, didn't I step right in on time? When you were weak along life's journey, my angel carried you so you would know just how much I love you. We'd keep singing a little bit and sing. How many days must I be a fence all around you? How many nights must I wipe your tears away? How many storms must I bring you safely through for you to know just how much I love you? Didn't I put food on your table, show up when all your bills were due, when the pains, they were racking your body? Didn't I send healing down to you when you were lost in sin and sorrow? I died to set you free so you would know just how much I love you. Think, think about it. Think about it. Hasn't God been good to you? Has get, hasn't God been better to you than you've been to him? Hasn't God been better to you than you deserve? Hasn't God been your helper? Hasn't God been your keeper? Hasn't God been your sustainer? Hasn't God been your provider? Hasn't God been your protector? (laughs) Ah, When you hid from him, he came looking for you. When you ran from him, he sent the Holy Spirit after you to bring you back. When you turned loose of him, he held on to you. When your way was blocked, he opened up a path. When you felt like you were all alone, he stood with you. When you were grieving, he comforted you. When you grew tired and weak, he refreshed you and gave you his strength. When you couldn't go another step, he picked you up and carried you. Oh, hasn't God been good to you? If God's been good to you, you ought to praise him for his goodness you should. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) Hallelujah. How can you think of bringing an accusation against God when he's been so good to you? When God calls for his people to remember, he does it with tenderness and with warmth and with unconditional love. But then we come to verses 6 and 7, and here we see the people's response. Hmm. Their response is defensive and abrasive. Here's what they say. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? See, God frames his charges in terms of the relationship. But the people respond basically by asking how much it's going to cost to buy God off. And and notice how the human response escalates to exaggerated proportions. How much sacrifice is it going to take, God? More burnt offerings? Another calf? Now it gets real. How many thousands of rams? If I I offer as many rams as Solomon did, would you be pleased with with me then? You can begin to sense the sarcasm here. Then they go on and they say, what about 10,000 rivers of oil? You know, oil was used when meal offerings were made to the Lord. So this question wonders if God would be pleased with thousands of rivers cascading with olive oil the implication is that God is unfair and he's impossible to please. And they go on. How about if I offer my firstborn child, would that be enough, God? This is absurd. God specifically forbids human sacrifice. See, their focus isn't on their hearts, but on things. Instead of inward surrender... They're just thinking of an outward show. Watch this. What they're really asking is how they can please God while still living according to their own pleasures. This is the same question that's being asked today. How can I please God and still live the way I want to live? How can I make sure I escape hell and get to heaven, but still satisfy my own desires and follow my own path? How about if I make sure to attend church, you know, at least once a month? Okay, twice. How about if I'm baptized? How about if I join the church? Uh, How many chapters in the Bible do I need to read each day? How much time do I need to spend in prayer? How about if I give at least 10% of my income? Uh, How about if I serve on one of the teams or host a Bible study or a small group? How about if I go on a mission trip? What if I abstain from all earthly pleasures, take a vow of poverty, and devote myself to a life of solitude? What about it, God? What's it gonna take to please you? What do I have to do so that at the end of my life, people will say, and more importantly, you will say, that was a good man, that was a good woman? In the midst of all the attempts at religious bargaining, the Lord speaks through the prophet and says that the issue isn't one of performance, instead, it's the condition of the heart. He begins in verse 8 with the revelation. He has showed you, O man, what is good. He's already told you. This isn't some new doctrine. This isn't something you've never heard before. This isn't coming out of left field and you wonder how it got there. He has showed you the revelation. Then he says... This is a requirement. He has showed you a oh man what is good and here it is and what does the Lord require of you? Please notice, this isn't a suggestion. This isn't an option. This is the pathway to the good life. Would anybody like to have a good life? I got seven of you. Good. All right. Here is the pathway to the good life. God has expectations beyond what is understood as routine religious practice. And the revelation is of a requirement that is not ritual and religion, it's relationship. Three things. The first one do justice. In its most basic form, to do justice is simply to do right. You know, the motto in America is, do what's right for me. God's motto is, do what's right, period. And notice he didn't say, when he said do justice, he didn't say, keep the law. See, see, laws change. Laws change. A law can be passed by one group, and then when the next group comes into power, that law can be overturned or rescinded or changed. Some laws serve a purpose for a time, but then the need for the law passes. I don't know if you're aware of this. I looked some of this up. Some laws that are on the books today are just bizarre. For example, did you know that in Waynesboro, Virginia, It's illegal for a woman to drive a car in Main Street unless her husband is standing in front of the car waving a red flag. (laughs) In North Carolina, it's illegal for bingo games to last more than five hours. Right up the road here in Quitman, Georgia, it's illegal for chickens to cross the road. I'm not making these up. They're on the books. Again, in North Carolina, it's illegal to sing off-key. I'm not so sure that I want to rescind that one. I kind of like it, you know. In Gainesville, Georgia, you are not allowed, by law, to eat fried chicken any other way than using your hands. I'm telling you, this. in Wyoming you may not take a picture of a rabbit from January to April without an official permit. In Indiana, it's illegal to attend a public event or use public transportation within four hours of eating an onion or garlic. In Idaho... It's illegal for a man to give his fiance a box of candy that weighs more than 50 pounds. In Arizona, if you are found stealing soap, you must wash yourself until the bar of soap has been completely used up. In Eureka, Nevada, it's illegal for you to kiss a woman if you have a mustache. Don't don't you wonder where some of these laws come from and and why they were made? I mean, why were they passed? See, earthly laws may change with the whim of the lawmaker. What is law this year may not be law next year but regardless of how many times earthly laws change God's law always stays the same when he says do justice now follow me here please when he says do justice God isn't talking about what's legal he's talking about what's right There are some things that are legal, but they aren't right. It's legal to take the life of an unborn child in a procedure known as abortion, but it isn't right. It's legal. For two people of the same gender to get a license, have a ceremony, and call themselves married, but it isn't right. It's legal for a husband to turn his affection away from his wife and family onto a younger, more attractive woman, divorce his wife, and either cohabit or marry the other woman, but it isn't right. It's not right for promotion and advancement to be based on ethnicity. Right. Okay. Right. It's not right when a black person is presumed to be guilty of criminal activity because he or she was seen in a predominantly white neighborhood. It's not right when all law enforcement people are characterized as racist or out of control brutes because of the actions of a few rogues. It's not right when the rich take advantage of the poor. It's not right when the deal gets slanted in favor of the one who has the most just because he or she has the resources and holds the power. It's not right when a verdict is handed down not on the merits of the argument but on the ability of the attorney to exploit a technicality. Just pay attention. You, you won't have to look very far to find injustice. It's all around you. And God says if you want the good life, do what's right. To do justice means to see with God's judgment or God's wisdom. Justice is God's desire for even handedness, fair play and equality within the human family. To do justice means to be an advocate for the weak, the vulnerable, the needy and the voiceless. It means to be an advocate for the rights of the unborn child, an advocate for the fair treatment of the strangers in your midst, an advocate for the elderly and the poor and those with special needs, and the person who needs another chance. It means to resist bias and discrimination on every front. Yeah. <laughs> Doing justice is working to see that everyone is treated fairly, especially those without defenses. Oh, you may not be able to right all the injustices in the world. But I like what Mother Teresa said. Never worry about numbers. Help one person at a time and always start with the person nearest to you. In your world, in your sphere of influence, do what's right, do justice. This is God's requirement for the good life. <clears throat> do justice, then. Uh, Then love mercy. I can just tell you right now, I'm looking at the clock and we are not going to get out of here right on on time. So y'all just fasten your seatbelts and hang on. I got some more stuff to tell you. All right. Do justice. Then the next one is love mercy. The word translated mercy literally means kindness. It comes from a Hebrew root word that means to bow the neck to an equal. It's the opposite of being stiff necked. If you are stiff-necked, you are stubborn and rigid and unkind to others. See, when two people in Bible times would meet, they would bow their necks to one another to signify that they see each other as equals and are willing to be kind to one another. When you love mercy, it means you won't be quick to give people what they deserve. Instead, you'll respond with the grace that they don't deserve. I'm reminded of the story I read about the mother who once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a serious offense not once, but twice, and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask for. Well, then the emperor said, I will have mercy, and he spared the woman's son. That's that's mercy. It's undeserved kindness. And notice the Lord didn't say do mercy or kindness. He said love mercy. That's because if you love something, you're going to do it. Am I right? See, no one has to tell an avid fisherman to go fishing. He loves fishing, he's going to go fishing. No one has to tell someone who loves to run to go running. No one has to tell a person who loves to shop to go shopping. No one has to tell a person who loves to have backyard barbecues to throw a party. No one has to tell someone who loves children to volunteer to work with children. So it is that when you love mercy, when you love to see acts of kindness, everybody is going to know because they'll see you do acts of kindness. Loving mercy means forgiving someone that doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Loving mercy means taking time to listen to somebody who needs someone to listen. Loving mercy doesn't allow you to look down upon those that don't look like you. If you want the good life, this is the requirement. Do justice, love mercy, and then finally, walk humbly with God. That word humbly simply means lowering yourself. To walk humbly with God means to take yourself out of first place and put him in first place. It means he's first in all your decisions. He's first in all your attitudes. He's first in all your words. He's first in all your problems. He's first in your home. He's first in your money. He's first in your relationships. He's first in your desires. Walking humbly with God means God isn't just the God of your dress up clothes on Sunday. He's the God of your gym clothes. He's the God of your work clothes. He's God in your walking around everyday clothes. When you walk humbly with your God, it means you allow your heart to be broken by the things that break his heart. It's a deep desire to see the world through the eyes of God and then to act in the world as God would act. One pastor said this about humility. It's being precisely the person we actually are before God. And I want to suggest to you that it's impossible to truly do justice and love mercy Without walking humbly with God. To walk humbly with God means first of all to, to match his path. That means if you're going to match his path. That means to walk in the same direction he's walking. To walk with God you have to know what direction he's going. And go his path. You have to acknowledge who's in control of setting the path for your life. You cannot go your own way. Do your own thing. Be your own person. And expect God to bless it. The blessing is in walking with God, not asking him to walk with you. Not only does it mean to match his path, then it means to match his pace. See, the, the, the calling is to walk with God, to accompany him. Not to run ahead of him, not to lag behind him. See, running ahead always leads you down the wrong path. You get ahead of God, and you're going to mess up. Lagging behind causes you to lose sight of the one you're following, and you'll get lost. You you can't lead if you don't know the path, but if you walk with the one who knows the path, you'll never get lost. So you match his path. You match his pace. And finally, to walk humbly with God means to match his purpose. Become his disciple, his follower. It means to remember that you are not co equal with God. I don't know why I felt the need to say that, but somebody probably needed to hear that. You are not co equal with God. Your opinion is not nearly as valid as his opinion. I'm just just saying. You are the creation, he is the creator. You are the disciple. He is the teacher. You are the servant. He is the master. You are the child. He is the father. Understand the relationship. Don't be like a rebellious teen struggling for control, struggling to be number one. God's requirement is that you walk humbly with him acknowledging his sovereignty, his leadership, his lordship. This is the requirement for the good life. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Never forget that at all times you represent the kingdom. It doesn't matter where you are on Sundays if you're not walking humbly with your God on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Aren't you glad we got to laugh a little bit in the middle of the sermon because this got heavy all of a sudden, didn't it? Let me just tell you, it doesn't matter if you post the Ten Commandments in all the public buildings if only the rich can afford justice in the courtrooms. I'm not done. It doesn't matter that you stand up for prayer in schools if you deny poor children the health care that your children all have access to. It doesn't matter if you are pro-life and demand that no child ever be aborted, if you refuse to provide the resources to keep them fed and healthy and educated once they are born. It doesn't matter that you shout loudly when somebody wants to take, in God we trust, off the currency, if your whole life revolves around consuming and acquiring and buying the things that those dollars can buy and never helping the poor. I'm talking about real life things today, folks. This isn't just a theoretical exercise. It has real life implications. Do justice. Act right. Love mercy. Be kind. Walk humbly with God. Choose to pursue a life that conforms to God's leading and God's will. Recognizing with heartfelt gratitude that God is in control. I'm reminded of a rather humorous prayer I read some time ago. Dear Lord, so far today I'm doing all right. Haven't gossiped, cursed, lost my temper, been greedy, nasty, selfish, or self-indulgent. However, I'm about to get out of bed in a few minutes, and I will need a lot more help after that. Y'all are laughing because some of y'all prayed that prayer. And some of y'all are taking notes because saying, I need this in the morning. (laughs) I just wonder before we conclude this service, if maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about one of these areas. Maybe you see where you need the help of the Lord. Maybe you see a need to repent to make a course correction. Maybe you haven't been putting God first in every area of your life. And you'd like to change that. He has showed you what is good. This is the requirement for the good life. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Let's bow together in prayer, shall we? O Lord. Your word speaks so loudly to us. And as we look in your word and and hear what the Spirit says in the midst of the preaching, we recognize areas where we have failed to live up to your requirement. And and, and it's not grievous, Lord. We've gotten sidetracked. We've gone our way instead of your way. So forgive us for that. Put within us a a fresh desire to truly walk humbly with you. We recognize, Lord, that our, our responsibility is not in all kinds of sacrifices. It's just to act right, love kindness, walk humbly with you. Help us to never lose sight of that. Give us the grace that we need to be able to walk that path every day. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.